Thank you, Mike, for reading the scriptures for us and praying for our body, our ministry, and our missionaries. Thank you, Yoon, for your testimony. Um, it's been a neat year. Thoughts um, being with you at Anaheim Flock, getting to know you, and both of our fathers are ill, so we've had much time in prayer together in fellowship, and truly thank God for that, and we'll be on our knees for your dad, and you'll continue to grow and serve with us here at Cornerstone. Glad to have you, brother. Well, as um, our Elder Bob shared, we returned from our annual elders retreat. The unofficial theme of our yearly retreat is four days of eating and meeting. Bob pretty much summed it up for us. Um, I think for our wives, it was four days of eating, meeting, and sewing. So I think they had fun doing that. Real encouraging time. I sense that our body is really at a We've hit our second gear in terms of ministry, and God is really blessing us and enabling us to carry out the work that He's called us to do. We will give a complete report during our second hour um, on the last Sunday of year 2002. You want to make a note of that on your calendar and definitely attend, and we'll just go through our whole retreat and our decisions and even our strength, weakness, opportunity, threat, culture, analysis of Cornerstone. We'll give that report at that time. And one of the things we did was finalize our um, mid-big flock groups. Anaheim, Placentia, Tustin, Irvine, Long Beach, and Milestone. Um, the groups have been given out to the flock shepherds. And they'll be contacting you throughout this day uh, on what flock um, you, you've been assigned, I guess. Someone assigned, you know, we considered three things, not in any order, but you, you were given two preferences, and we wanted to work around that as much as possible. But we considered also the dynamic of each flock group to make sure that, that each flock group had people that would make it a, just a good group to study the Word together and fellowship together. And then we also considered what would be the best uh, for the whole body at Cornerstone. Bob and I went through 13 drafts in going to the flock groups. So please don't make us change it again. <laughs> right? um, um, but if you have any questions, and you know, we're open to you guys. You want to make a request, you know, a personal thing against, I don't know, Anaheim. You want to just talk to me or Bob, and we'll try to accommodate you as much as possible. Well, it's been a wonderful time, has it not? Past few months, going through various studies, on Sunday mornings, all the way from Romans 12, 14. You had no idea coming Sunday what you're going to study. How exciting. Well, now back to our mundane, predictable study in the Gospel of John. And my heart, I'm glad, because I know what I'm going to be preaching week after week, back to our main study. And to start us this morning, I want to take you not to Israel 2,000 years ago, I want to take you to my parents' store two weeks ago, right? Because I had a very interesting guest come to our store a few weeks ago, a middle-aged Jewish rabbi. He was dressed all in black. He had uh, sideburns that were uncut, twirling on his side in accordance to Old Testament commands. He came into my parents' store while I was working there. All my years there, first time we had a Jewish rabbi in a store, (laughs) I could recall. Interestingly enough, he was soliciting funds for a synagogue, right? Why he wanted donation. 
Well, he put his right hand out. So I asked him, is it alright for you to be shaking the hand of a Gentile? And he said, no problem. I have no problem. He says, I'm a Hasidic Jew. Hasidic is a, somewhat a more moderate group in, the, in Judaism. Orthodox Jews would not shake hands with a Gentile, but he was a Hasidic Jew, so we shook hands. I asked him, hey, if that was okay for you to enter a home of a Gentile, he said he would have no problem, of course, coming into a home of a Gentile, unless, of course, there was some offensive thing in the house. And I asked him, you know, what sort of thing would prevent you from entering a Gentile's house? You know, I'm thinking like a Harry Potter poster, right? Or a picture of, I don't know, you know, those pictures, right, that are out there. Well, he pointed to a necklace that was hanging behind me. It was a necklace with a cross. He said he would never enter a house or a building with a cross inside it. With the tone of his voice, with the expression on his face, I immediately sensed his hostility and hatred towards Jesus Christ. So suffice to say, I didn't give him any donations for a synagogue. And I was amazed. Even after 2,000 years, hatred towards Christ is still present. And it reminded me of today's passage. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now, normally, because 1 through 10 is background material. Remember, our Lord is in Judea. In, chapters, in chapter 5, He was down in, uh, excuse me, He's in Galilee. In chapter 5, He was down in Judea and Jerusalem. He healed the paralytic on the Sabbath, caused a great controversy. They were conspiring to kill Him. So He left the southern part of Israel and He went up to Galilee. And here He is in Galilee and He fed the multitudes in John chapter 6. He quieted the storm and the first defection of His disciples began in John chapter 6, 66. Now in John 7, after about 6 months, our Lord is still in the upper region of Israel in Galilee. And His brothers compel Him to go down to Jerusalem. That's the capital of Israel, to reveal himself, to do his miracles, not in the suburbs, but do it in the capital, so that he would be embraced by the world. And the Feast of Tabernacles was coming, they were telling him to come back, and, and he comes back, and chapter 7, 8, and 9 of John is in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where Israel, when they were when they were coming out of Egypt, they slept in tents. It was a memorial feast to remember God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. It was an annual festival. Every Jew within 15 miles of Jerusalem was compelled to come and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But all faithful Jews throughout the region would come as in waves to Jerusalem to participate in this feast. And our Lord's dialogue with the Jewish leaders occurs in the context of this Feast of Tabernacles, and particularly John 8.12. On the eighth day, Yom Kippur, on that last night, they turn out all the candles in the temple area. And that is when Christ comes to the scene and He says, these lights are all temporary. I am the light of the world. If anyone follows Me, you will not walk in darkness. So really, verses 1 through 10 is just background, setting up chapters 7 through 9. So normally, I would just briefly touch upon this background material and straight into the controversial dialogue 
that our Lord had with the leaders of Israel, except for one verse. John 7, 7. That compels me to spend a whole sermon on this passage because of that one verse where Christ said, the world hates me. That's the verse that came to mind when the Hasidic Jew, Jewish gentleman, that he will not enter a house with a cross inside it. Our Lord understood that animosity, that hatred. He felt it every day of his life. John 3.19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness in, instead of light. John 15.18, if the world hates you, remember. Remember, the world hated me first. Our Lord tells us that the, the, the Jewish religious system, the religious leaders of Israel, not only rejected Him as the Messiah, that wasn't it. They not only rejected Him, they hated Him. They loathed Him. They couldn't stand His presence. Their hatred motivated them to do all kinds of evil against Christ. They slandered Christ. They vilified Him with their words. They accused Jesus of abominable and unspeakable things. They said that He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. They said our Lord was from the wrong neighborhood, of Nazareth. They called Him a deceiver, a hypocrite, that He was demon-possessed, full of the devil. They accused Him of being a false prophet. They called Him a liar. They called Him a falsifier. They called Him a Samaritan, a half-breed. They called Him a sinner, John 9. John 9. They called Him insane. They called Him mad. And they called Him blasphemer. Throughout his entire ministry, they hated him and they vilified him with their words. And you know what, guys? Their hatred didn't start with the beginning of our Lord's ministry. The hatred of our Lord was, was in place before he was even born. Before he was even born, the world hated Christ. Imagine that. From even before he was born, the powers of this world tried to kill him. Remember he was born with a wart on his head? Hundreds of babies were massacred by Herod. In the hopes that of the hundreds of the babies that are killed, they will kill Jesus as well. Our, our Lord's death on the cross was not the first and last attempt on his life. It was the final attempt. The final successful attempt among many attempts on his life. There were scores of attempts on our Lord's life. Luke 4, he was, they attempted to throw him off the hill because of his sermon. Remember after his first sermon in his hometown? Right? They got him outside, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. In John 5.18, after he lived on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders conspired to kill him. John 12, the Jews desired to kill not just Jesus, but Lazarus who was walking with the Lord, because just by Lazarus' mere presence, he was testifying to the messianic role of Christ. In John 18 and 19, the Jews are adamant to Pontius Pilate, they're adamant to kill Christ. In John 19, it's the Jews who are actually leading Christ to Calvary. Right? Jews are leading that procession, because they want the credit for his execution. Now, at this point, I want to make one thing clear. 
make one point, clarify one point. Maybe a few points. The, the writer of this gospel is John. Now, what's his ethnic background? He's a Jew. Right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's accurately reporting historical facts that the Jewish leaders hated Christ and conspired to kill, kill him. The leaders of Israel. The Jewish people were comprised of people who held many different views of Christ. Among the people, there were those who followed Christ, who were Jews. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Some thought he was just a lunatic. Or they didn't care. They were just interested in their own affairs. It wasn't comprised of a unified mentality among the Jewish people. But the ones who conspired to kill the Lord and execute Him were the leaders of Israel, the elders, scribes, and the Pharisees. Matthew 27, 1 and 2. Early in the morning, all the chief priests, elders of the people, came to the decision to put Jesus to death. Luke 22, 4 and 5. The chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the Pharisees discussed with Judas how he might betray Jesus. So in John's mind, when he says Jews, he's not saying the Jewish people as if they were like a monolithic group of people. No, he was pointing the leaders of Israel. They are the ones who hate Christ. They are the ones who murdered Christ. Even the mob in John 19 that are gathered and Pontius Pilate says, Whom shall I release, Barabbas or Jesus? And they say, Release Barabbas, crucify Christ. It is early in the morning. What mob gets up early in the morning to set a murderer free? That mob was there because the Jewish leaders brought them there. The Jewish leaders told them, we want Barabbas. You tell Pontius Pilate we want Barabbas. That mob is not a reflection of the Jewish people. Therefore, for us to indict a whole people group as the murderers of Christ is inappropriate and inaccurate. Um, Jewish people are our friends in the sense that we want to share the gospel to them. The last thing you want to do is, you murdered Christ. Will you trust in Him? Right? That's not a way for evangelism. Right? That's, not, that's not wise. John indicts the leaders of his, the religious system. The leaders, the elders, chief priests, we want to make that clear. And all men outside of Christ are enemies of, of, of Christ. Right? I mean, we murdered Christ by our sins. Jews and Gentiles alike. Well, so it was, it was not the Jewish people per se, but the leaders who attempted many times to kill him and succeeded in killing him on the cross. Now, why did they hate Christ so much? What motivated them? Their motivation was pure and simple. They hated him. They hated Christ. They were against everything that Christ stood for. They were against him personally. We read of soldiers in battle and they tell you afterwards that they have no personal emotions towards their enemy. In fact, some soldiers say, in battle, I respected my enemy because of his courage. Because of his loyalty to his command. I had respect for my enemy and I, I, I killed them and I have no emotions either way. I just want to survive. Even those snipers on the East Coast, their testimony is it was random. There was nothing personally against people that they murdered. 
but not with Christ. They murdered him because they hated him. Question is why, right? Why did they murder him because they hated him? Now, why the hatred? What is it about Christ that was so offensive that they would go to such lengths to murder him? Now, on one hand, their hatred is without reason, is without cause. And more rightly, they hated Jesus for no legitimate reason. No right reason. Psalm, 60, Psalm 69.4 They hate me without reason. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. And John 15.25 Our Lord, hundreds of years later, quotes this verse as a prophecy directed towards Him. He says, This is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Right? There was no legitimate reason to, love, to hate Christ. Gentle, humble in heart, ministering to the lost, bringing people back to God, healing the sick, raising the dead. Why would anyone hate a man like this? No legitimate reason. But, secondly, they had their reasons for hating Christ. They had wrong reasons for hating Christ. We'll get to the main reason in this section, but I want to point out one of the many reasons they hate Christ. The main reason is in verse 7. But one thing I want to point out that reveals somewhat, that reveals a lot about these Jewish leaders is found in Matthew 27, 17 through 18. Let me just read for you guys. And you know, you know who discerned this motivation? It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't Christ. It was a murderer himself, Pontius Pilate. When he saw the leaders of Israel and saw how they were railroading him to, to execution on the cross, this was Pontius Pilate concluded, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Pilate gave this opportunity to the crowds. Who do you want me to uh, release? Barabbas or Jesus, the Messiah? And he emphasized Christ. Why? Verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pontius Pilate, right? a non-believer, he couldn't care about Jesus, a neutral bystander in, in, in this politics of, in, in Israel. And he says, and he, his conclusion was, they had the Lord because they're envious, they were jealous. That was one of the reasons they wanted to kill Christ, they hated him. They were jealous of his popularity. They were jealous of his power, of his authority, of his teaching. That's how the world works, right? Even the elections now, right? Just, just include it. Who had the power? Who has the power? You know, who, who, who just lost the power? Who's coming into power? It's all about power. And the Jews were jealous that our Lord had it. That our Lord had the fame. He had the notoriety. He had the crowds. And He had the popularity of the people. So they gnashed their teeth at the sight of the immense crowd that were rushing to see Christ. They never said it publicly, but they hated the sight of those he had healed. They hated the fact that massive people were converting, were repenting of their sins and being baptized. It was so obvious, even Pontius Pilate could see it. 
They were carnal men. They were not spiritual men. They were not holy men. They were carnal men driven by the most carnal motivation of envy and jealousy. That's one reason. And I point that out because I want to touch upon that in our application time later on. But in John chapter 7, verse 7, our, our Lord tells us the main reason why they hated Him. The main reason. And you and I, guys, we're in a gospel ministry, are we not? We're here. One of our missions is to save the lost. And therefore, as missionaries of the gospel, it is imperative that you and I understand this simple truth of the world's view, the world's position against Christ. Why they hate our Lord. It will help us in our walk as we live in this world. As we live among family members who are not Christians. As we proclaim the gospel, it is imperative we understand why they hate the Lord. Why they hate Christ. Well, let's go to the text. John chapter 7 verse 1. After these things, our Lord was walking in Galilee. After these things is feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, defection of his disciples in 666, Peter's declaration, Lord, whom shall we go to? You are the Holy Holy One of God. You are the words of life. And that was around Passover time. And Passover is during the spring. Verse 2 tells us the Feast of Tabernacles is coming, coming near. So within one verse, John spans six months. This is called the Lord's retirement ministry, where He withdraws from public ministry and He focuses on His disciples. So for six months, He was in Galilee, in obscurity, ministering predominantly towards His disciples. Six months has passed, and in fact, only a few months till Passover, when He would die. So we're in about before, within four months of His crucifixion. It says in verse 1b, he was unwilling to go down to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now we know it was not fear on our Lord's part. It was just not the right time, right opportunity. The word here is kairos. The opportunity wasn't present. And God's divine plan for him to go, be coordinated as king, and within, within seven days die on the cross. The time wasn't right. It needs to happen during Passover. So he didn't want to go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. But the Lord's brother said to him, verse 3, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one wants to become a public figure and acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe him. His own brothers. Jesus' brothers here refers not to his disciples, but to the sons of Mary and Joseph, after the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. Right? These are our Lord's half-brothers. He had four half-brothers. The Roman Catholics are wrong again. Right? They, they teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. No. They had many children after Christ. And on a side note, you might have heard about this or read about this uh, discovery in Israel. Recently they found an ossuary. It's a, a stone box, burial box, that, that they use to bury... Uh, the, the remains of a person's body, the bones, and, and they found this burial box that dates back to the first century, and it's inscribed, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Archaeologists tell us this is rare, 
almost never happens. The inscription is usually James, son of Joseph, right? Or Ben, son of, I don't know your dad's name, but son of John. I mean, that's, that's the normal inscription. Nobody ever says, you know, Ben, son of John, brother of, I forgot your brother's name too. Right? I got to know your family names. Right? That never happens. But this ossuary has James, son of Joseph, and brother of Jesus. They would only do this if that brother was someone special, a public figure. And they say the probability of this ossuary being the actual ossuary of James, Jesus' half-brother, is very likely, very strong. It's the first non-biblical archaeological artifact that supports, points directly to the historical Jesus. Well, I just mentioned that because the brothers are mentioned here. An amazing find. Well, at this time, the brothers did not believe in him. After the resurrection, they become pillars of the church. The book of James was written by this James. The book of Jude written by this Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus. But before the resurrection, they did not believe in Christ. And they were telling Christ, He should take his show down to Jerusalem. Right? You've got a great, great thing going, Jesus. But if you want to be a public figure, if you want to be popular, you've got to make it in New York, right? You've got to go to L.A. You can't be in Oklahoma. Right? You can't be in Kansas or Ohio. You gotta go to New York or LA. You gotta go to, you gotta go to Jerusalem. And do your miracles there. And the world will embrace you. They will love you. They will worship you. They will crown you as king. And we'll be in your cabinet, right? They will crown you as king. Go to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the world. The world will love you. And our Lord's response in verse 7 is this. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. The world cannot hate you. Impossible, because you are part of this world. But look, but it hates me. But it hates me. Show myself to the world? They're going to embrace me? They're going to love me? They're going to worship me? You don't know what you're talking about. They're going to kill me. Why? Because the world hates me. The world here is the realm of evil. Mankind alienated from God. Manifesting open hostility to God and His Anointed One. The world here is represented by the religious system of Israel. And here our Lord tells us, tells the brothers and tells us the real reason, the main reason why they hate Christ. Because I testify that what it does is evil. Religious leaders of Israel hated Christ because He exposed their sins. By his life and by his ministry of preaching, he testified and exposed the corruption, the spiritual bankruptcy of their whole synthetic system. It was nothing. It was evil in the sight of God. And let me illustrate this, guys. Maybe bring it home to our context, help us to understand what's going on here. You know, in high school, my senior year, I don't know, I was really dumb. I don't know what I was doing. I took AP Physics. Right? What do I know about physics? Anybody that knows me, knows me in my math, numbers. They're my enemy. I mean, I'm just not good with numbers. Well, I took physics, AP Physics, and we had a weekly test. And it was always graded on a curve. A very difficult class. Well, all of us, every single one of us, small class, maybe 15 to 20 students, all of us were very average AP students. So if we were in any other class, we would have all got B's and C's. I mean, we're set. Except there was this one guy. 
I think it was Charles Park. <laughs> Charles, if you're out there, I still remember you. This guy was like a physics maniac. One of those guys that would eat lunch in class in the classroom, right? If you did that, no offense to you, but you know those guys, right? They can't get enough enough of school. They have to just like eat lunch in class with with their teachers. I mean, he would read chapters ahead of time to prepare for chapters that we were going to study for weeks weeks ahead. One of those guys who like just did extra credit even though he was getting an A. Why do you need extra credit when you're getting an A? Be content. Uh, what's the motivation there? Stop. But I mean, this guy, I mean, he got perfect or near perfect in every single test. He ruined our curve. <laughs> so we, we should have been getting B's and C's. We're getting C's and D's. Right? And I wasn't getting C's, so you know what I was getting. <laughs> Man, we were so angry at him. I remember towards the end of the semester, he was getting like A+++++++. And like, we're, we're kind of saying, hey, you know, you kind of relax a little bit. Right? You're already getting an A. Ease up so that we can kind of like pass this class. Well, guy, no, he didn't. He stepped it up. He stepped it up. He rose above his circumstance. It was getting perfect rain. And so he rolled our And we, you know, we're not, we despised him. Man, we hated him. Man, we're, take him outside and show him some physics. Right? That's what I was talking about. Right? Because, his intelligence revealed what? Our lack of it, right? We despised him because we were taking the same test, we were in the same material, but his intelligence revealed our lack. Well, it's a you know, funny story, but we can kind of see it, right? It parallels this with Christ. By his life, his holiness of his life condemned their worldliness. By His humility, by His compassion, by His meekness, just by His life, He radiated the holiness of God. And when they were next to Him, they felt like they were next to a giant spiritual diet. Indeed, they were. And instead of producing in them a heart of brokenness, contriteness, and repentance, they hardened their hearts. Their hearts were made hard as stone, calloused. They turned against him and they hated Christ and conspired to murder him. And our Lord was no coward. Our Lord didn't back down from telling the truth. He exposed the corruption by his teaching. He vehemently declared the depravity of the religious leaders of Israel. In Luke 11:38. The Pharisees were eating a meal together and they noticed our Lord didn't wash His hands before He was eating. And they were all thought, oh look, He's not ritually clean. Look at this sinner. He eats without washing His hands. Our Lord picked up on this and He said, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. Woe to you Pharisees, because you build tombs for the prophets 
But it was your forefathers who killed them. Woe to you because you're whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones. Our Lord, by His life and by His teaching, condemned the wickedness of the leaders of Israel. And because of that, they hated Christ and they murdered Him. It was not because... It was not because of anything in Christ that, was, that deserved their hatred. They hated Him because of His holiness and because of their wickedness. I mean, this, this tells us why the leaders of Israel and why the people of this world outside of Christ hate Christ. They do not believe in Him. It's not intellectual. It's not because of philosophical arguments. It's not apologetics or reasoning. People aren't Christians because of sin. It's not intellectual, it's moral. It's personal. It's because of sin that they reject and hate Christ. Well, three final thoughts to close our time. Um, First of all, Pontius Pilate pointed this out, right? One of the motivations was envy and jealousy. They wanted to murder him because of this. What a vile human trait. He has such great potential for harm. Envy moved, compelled them to murder God's son. They want the attention. They want the limelight. They want the position of power and authority. And we say, man, those Jewish leaders, they are so bad. Well, what does the half-brother of Jesus, James, what does he say to us, the church? He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Fights in the church? What causes that? Your quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And he equates that with friendship with the world, being envious and jealous and covet, coveting things of one another. This is a sin that all of us need to be aware of. The sin of envy and jealousy. It tears apart the church and it tears apart one's faith. It makes them become a friend of this world when moved by envy and jealousy they crawl and fight secondly um, this truth that our Lord is hated by the world it, it heightens the challenge for us of being faithful to the gospel ministry it heightens the challenge for us to be faithful to the gospel ministry brothers and sisters we know you know better than me that in our day Popular psychology has made it virtually a heresy to accuse anyone of being bad. It's heretical to say anyone's a sinner. It's politically incorrect to offend people by preaching the gospel that they need to be saved. Therefore, many Christian pastors have decided that whether or not they're sinners or not, it is impolite, 
counterproductive to say so. So it, they don't want to be negative. So they kind of carved that section out of the gospel of confronting man's sins. They preach a power, positive message, powerful living, believe in Christ, and they leave out the sin. This trend was seen in the 20s and 30s by a theologian named J. Gresham Machen. With a remarkable foresight, he predicted the outcome of this kind of uh, movement in, the, in evangelicalism. <clears throat> he wrote this quote, The fundamental fault of the modern church is that it is busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task of calling the righteous to repentance. People who are righteous in their own sight. It is impossible to call them to repentance. Modern preachers are trying to bring men into the church without requiring them to relinquish their sin and their pride. They are trying to help men avoid the conviction of sin, but this is entirely futile. Even our Lord did not call the righteous repentance, and probably we shall be no more successful than He." James Stewart, the great Scottish preacher, put it more bluntly, Christianity is not for the well-being. It is for those who are desperate. It is not for those who are righteous in their own eyes. It is for those who are desperate because they see their own helplessness with their own sins. Our challenge is to preach the truth to this world. Whether they can handle it or not, preach the truth that they are in sin, that they are enemies of Christ. Our Lord came to expose sin and that meant hatred and that meant death but did not dissuade Him from preaching the truth. If we are followers of Christ, then we must follow faithfully in preaching His message. To preach the righteousness of God means to expose the wickedness of man. These two go hand in hand. You leave either out and you're not. I am not preaching the gospel. The first goal of the gospel preacher is to help people to see the truth about themselves. Can you handle the truth? Can you handle it? Whether it means the severing of our friendship, whether it means the loss of my job, whether it means dividing the family, this is the truth. The sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God. Third, final thought, is that discipleship is not just how we relate to Christ in the church. But discipleship is really also how we relate to this world. It's both and, right? It's not just the church in Christ, but it's church and how we relate to the world. What is your relationship with the world? Are you a friend of this world or are you an enemy of this world? Have you ever been slandered because of Christ? Have you ever been rejected or demeaned or unliked or disparaged because of your faith in Christ? Have you ever made decisions that have caused you to suffer reproach and slander by others? Matthew 10 
21 through 22, talking to the disciples, brothers, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will be the members of his household. Whoever loves his father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Because of the Son of Man, you are blessed. You know, as Christians... We're not making an impact in the world if people are not angry with us. Really. If people are not disturbed, if people are not bothered, if people are not offended by us, we're not engaging the world with the gospel. We're not. Because gospel is offensive. We need to have people angry with us and not because of dumb things. Right? Not because you're obnoxious or I'm obnoxious or because of some social or political issue. Right? I read this week as a Christian environmentalist against driving sports utility vehicles, right? Because it expends so much gas. It's against the environment. And they want to make billboards across America saying, what would Jesus drive? Man, half our church leadership drives SUVs, right? And Pat was saying, in Palestine, you've got to drive an SUV to get around. Our Lord definitely would have driven an SUV. It's so rocky, Right? I mean, they shouldn't be mad at us because of dumb things like that. They should be angry at us because of the gospel, because of our faith in Christ. In your life and in my life, there will be opportunities to stand for Christ. Especially in your families, there will be an opportunity for you to stand up for Christ. It will anger them, divide the family, but that's that Kairos opportunity. The herald the gospel. Don't miss it. It's talking to a Christian. The person had an opportunity to stand for Christ. Yes, it would offend the person's family. Perhaps divide the family. But I asked the person, why? Why didn't you stand? That was your opportunity. To stand up for Christ. To proclaim the gospel. And if that meant being hated by your family, hated by this world, then you are blessed. You are blessed. Well, I don't know if I, I, I asked her if I should share this because I don't know, but if I just share about myself. But Montoya has given me more boldness to share about myself. I don't think Montoya was boasting of himself. He was giving glory to God. And that's the heart with which I share. You know, 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, my dad kicked me out of the house because of my faith in Christ. My dad got physically violent and kicked me out of the house. And I was getting, leaving with my Jeep and he said, I'm paying for that car you need to walk out of this house. So I walked out. Because of my faith in Christ, because I was going into ministry, he would have none of it in his household. That was my opportunity to stand for Christ. I could have cowered. I could have given in. But God's grace, I said, Dad, I love God more than you. 
I'm a follower of Christ. I honor you, but this is what I'm going to do. Man, that come, got my dad angry, right? Anyway, wait. Uh, tips were forward, me. For almost 10 years, my dad was consistently hostile to the Christian faith. He openly, in my presence, mocked Christianity. He denied the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. He tried to many times dissuade me from my faith in Christ. Well, last year, my dad got ill. I knew another Kairos opportunity. This was my opportunity to stand for Christ. So I began to serve him. I began to help him, minister to him, help around the store, just minister, preach the gospel, pray for him, hold his hands and pray for him. I would minister to him. And a few weeks ago, we're talking about, some, about his friend who was no good, involved in gambling, had debts all over the place, and was a bad influence towards my dad. And I said, Dad, he's not your friend. A friend is someone who encourages you in your walk with Christ. And he said to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, James, then you're my only friend. I know that that came about, that changed in the heart, because ten years ago, by God's grace, I stood and took that opportunity to stand for Christ. Those opportunities will come in your life. It might mean dividing your family. It might mean offending your parents. It might mean losing a job. But that's an opportunity to preach the gospel. Christ is hated by this world. Will you be a friend of this world? Or will you stand with Christ? Let's pray. Lord, that you would give us boldness for the gospel. Lord, that you would grant us freedom from the fear of man, the ensnaring fear of man. Lord, grant to us such love for you and your kingdom that we would take every opportunity to stand for you. And if it even means death, even if it means the, the death and taking away of our lives, of our cherished Loved ones, we will stand with you, boldly heralding the gospel, because that is your example before us. We pray that as we live in this world, that we would understand we're pilgrims. We're just pilgrims. We're strangers, aliens, exiles on this earth. We're not made for this world. We're made for your kingdom. Lord, we would be uncomfortable. We would be hated. We would be insulted, slandered, reproached because we long for the kingdom that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray.